Hosanna. Hosanna, indeed. Watching the kids parade around uh, the sanctuary with their palm branches is probably one of my favorite moments in worship. But to be honest, I haven't been in a full Palm Sunday worship service in a long time. Usually in the nursery and all through college and seminary, I helped with the kids. So I felt like I was reading this text for the first time when I started to sit down and uh, think about today. Uh, it's so interesting how much a difference just a few years can make in how you read something. I read the scripture once, and then a second time, and then I went to the library to read commentaries because surely I was reading into this wrong. Palm Sunday is a sweet, beautiful, happy day where the kids get to walk around with palm branches and we all celebrate this triumphant entry of Jesus. Palm Sunday isn't political, is it? But as I read and studied the scripture, I kept coming back to that same conclusion. One author wrote that this was the most politically explosive act of Jesus' ministry. So maybe all this excitement, all this celebration covers up something more complicated. Something deeper than what first meets the eye. There are so many strange things in this text. Things that could be considered ironic, even. The first thing I thought of while reading this text again was, why does Jesus go out of his way to garner all this attention? He spent so long telling people, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell them that I completed these miracles. And now all of a sudden he wants to ride through Jerusalem like it's some kind of parade. It seems strange. Jesus was traveling into Jerusalem for a big festival. And while that festival isn't explicitly named in the scripture, most everyone assumes that that's Passover. So there are a lot of people making that same pilgrimage into Jerusalem. A lot of tourists, if you will, wandering into the city. And most everyone traveled on foot. But in the first few verses of chapter 11, we see Jesus send his disciples for a cult. He sends two disciples just as he sends two disciples later to prepare the Passover meal. If I had been one of those disciples, I would have had a lot of questions. Because first of all, uh, don't you think this is going to draw a lot of attention to us? I mean, everyone else is just walking in and you want to ride on a cult? Okay, and then I would get to the why a cult. I mean, if we're going to do it, we might as well do it big. You know what I'm saying? Like, get a big, fancy, regal-looking horse, but you want me to go get you a cult. Okay, come on, Jesus. But Jesus chooses to ride a cult. He even exercises this sort of royal prerogative to call an animal for his own use. And his entrance has all the markings of a royal arrival. But with an almost humorous twist, this parade of sorts is filled with conflicting signals as if it intends to be satire on, the military, on military liberators. Military leaders, kings, princes, they would have ridden on and on horses, steeds, not a young colt. Now the scripture does say that the colt had never been ridden on, which apparently would have been good for ceremonial use, but who else knows that besides the disciples and Jesus? Unless they were walking beside him going, it's okay guys, it's good for ceremonial use, no one else has written on it, it's totally great. <laughs> one book I read pointed out that there could be a specific reason Jesus chose a cult. Princes typically rode cults when they were trying to signify peaceful intentions. So when kings or other leaders entered on their big horses with their military entourage, they could be signaling some type of victory in battle. Or making some type of proclamation that they intended to take over the city they were entering. But Jesus wasn't a military leader. 
He didn't walk in with a military squad, but instead with a band of fishermen, tax collectors, and laborers. He did not come to conquer, but to bring peace. So he chose to ride a colt. Others say Jesus wrote a cult to fulfill a prophecy found in Zechariah. Now, the author of Mark doesn't mention this passage as some of the other um, gospel writers do, so we can't be sure. Whether it was a symbolic action or a fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus did choose to ride a cult and flip the switch on what was normal in society, as he usually did. Even when you look at his actual entrance, you can see markings of a royal arrival. It says people put their garments on the ground and branches on the ground. And in 2 Kings, it states that putting garments on the ground is an important part of a royal welcome. And to some, the branches signify nationalistic interest and would have been present in an entrance ceremony for important visitors. So Jesus seems to make a royal entrance. He enters with all eyes on him as a fulfilling messianic prophecy. Of course, he makes that entrance his own. He doesn't follow a typical protocol. Jesus is turning imperial notions of power and rule on their head. He's basically making a mockery of the powers that be and their focus on glory and dominion. Yeah. He enacts a different way, an alternative way. He comes not as one who loves authority over others, but as one who humbly rejects domination. He enters with this royal grand gesture, but on a humble colt. And people loved it. The scripture says they spread their cloaks and branches on the road. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Another strange piece of the story comes in at this point with the word that we say often on Palm Sunday. Hosanna. I've only ever heard it as a joyful celebration of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. I always thought it was just another word that we used to praise God. And I think in our tradition, it's certainly become that for some people. But the first few times that we see this word, it's actually translated, and we've said this a little today already, Lord, save us. The crowds wanted a Messiah to literally come and save them from oppressive government structures. After crying out, Lord, save, they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're praising him, but they are praising him because they believe he's going to be the one to rescue them from these structures. The crowds were expecting a military leader. They were expecting someone like David to come in and conquer their enemies. Is that why just a few days later the crowds turned against him? Because he didn't fulfill their expectations for this Davidic Messiah? The kingdom Jesus is ushering in is not a restoration of the political privilege enjoyed by Israel during the reign of David. Nor does it confirm the policies of their current leaders. When we look back at this scripture, we see Jesus as someone who came not with pomp and wealth, but as one who identified with the poor. One who comes not as a mighty warrior, but who is vulnerable and refuses to rely on violence. He continues to play into this politically subversive nature of the gospel. He continues to bring peace. The crowds are gathered to celebrate Passover as a remembrance of their, of their liberation, of the exodus, God liberating them. And uh, they don't really understand that this is a new kind of liberation. Mm -hmm. Through these few chapters in Mark, we go from glory on Sunday to humiliation on Friday. Preach, preach. Possibly because Jesus' purpose was not to conquer enemies, but to bring peace for all. Now, I'm not going to get too much into Good Friday, yeah, Good Friday, because I hope you're all going to come to the Good Friday service. <laughs> but I have just a few things, <laughs> because I can't understand 
how they got from Hosanna to crucify him. Yes, yes. And I think that those two things, they're really wrapped up in one another. You can't understand Jesus' ministry and his purpose without understanding both sides. You can't fully understand Jesus without understanding the suffering. And we can't understand the suffering just by reading the crucifixion story. We understand suffering in the way that it has come down through century after century, and we can see it in, the people, in people's lives today. Until we can see the truth of human dignity in every person, even those we find the most difficult to love, those who might receive judgment to be or suspicious stares from us, those are the people we're still called to love. And we can learn a lot from this switch the crowd seems to make. While we don't know how many of the same people shouted Hosanna one day and then crucified him a few days later, we can certainly see a difference in the crowd mentality. And we can learn a lot from it. First, today we have a way of fooling ourselves into seeing what we want to see. Sometimes the things that claim our attention are really the least deserving of it. Second, divine sovereignty is not determined by popular appeal. Hey. And third, those who work for peace are often victims of violent reprisals. And I'm going to read that again because that's important for later. Those who work for peace are often victims of violent reprisals. Jesus did not come to conquer any people or groups of people. Jesus came to bring peace. And people couldn't handle it. Mm. It was so different than what they thought the Savior was supposed to be. Mama. Amid the fanfare of Palm Sunday that claims our attention, are we able to recognize God's strange, surprising, subversive power at work in this text? Are we able to recognize that power when it's right in front of us? Mm. Earlier I mentioned you can't understand Jesus' suffering until you see it through the eyes of those suffering today. What about this crazy justice and peace-seeking gospel message? Can we recognize that in our lives today? What about what we see in the news? How about through our teenagers? Yeah. Teenagers all over our country are calling for peace. They are calling for gun control. They are calling for systemic changes. They're using the hashtags never again and not one more. They're working for peace so that no other student or family has to go through what they did. Powerful and brave students from Parkland High School in Florida are leading a peaceful protest. Yesterday, cities all across America joined in for the March for Our Lives. I know some of you went to the march here in Atlanta. In D.C., Naomi Wadler, an 11-year-old, spoke about gun violence committed against African-American women. Bring them in, Rebecca. She spoke their names. She called attention to the stories that aren't making headlines. Well. And these students, they are all speaking to government officials. Their stories are encouraging companies to cut ties with the NRA. And they are crying out for peace and inspiring others to do the same. And unfortunately, the statement I read earlier applies just as much to these kids in 2018 as it did to Jesus thousands of years ago. Those who work for peace are often victims of violent reprisals. Death threats. People are sending these kids death threats. Because they have chosen to use their voice to speak up and say never again. To say this should never have happened in the first place and we want to make sure it can't happen again. And in the midst of their grief, in the midst of death threats, there was another school shooting in Maryland. There were bombings, acts of terrorism in Austin. Stephon Clark was shot in his grandma's backyard over 20 times while holding a cell phone. A cell phone. 
And again, teenagers led the way in that protest. It wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as prominent on the media, but they shut down the I-5 in Sacramento as they protested Savan's death. There's violence all around us, sometimes sanctioned by our own government. Mm -hmm. And still the voices crying out for peace continue to be silenced. And you know what's really sad to me is that I got stuck on a lot, kind of an article binge. And um, I read all these articles about things that are happening in Sacramento. And it was so sad to me how many white sympathizers, you know, seemingly well-meaning, progressive people, were so upset about these protests surrounding Stefan's Clark death. Seemingly well-meaning. They basically said, I mean, I get it. His death should be protested. He only had a cell phone. Why did the cops turn off their mics at one point? And so on. But did you really need to block the entrance to the Kings game? One, by, one bystander said he and his family shouldn't have to suffer by missing the game. They paid good money for those tickets and weren't permitted in because the protesters were blocking the doors. You guys, I'm not exaggerating. He used the word suffering. And you don't even want to get them started on what a huge inconvenience it was for the I-5 to shut down during rush hour. They couldn't have picked a better time for a protest. That's what they said. I read one article that said this a little better than me, so I'm going to uh, read what that author said. First of all, let's get one thing straight. Being inconvenienced for one day or even two is not suffering, a word I've heard far too many times since Thursday. Suffering is what Clark's family is doing right now. Suffering is what young black men do all over this country, living with the fear of their lives being taken by gun violence. But everyone's worried about their afternoon commute Mama. and a basketball game. Even the sympathizers are silencing the peacemakers again. My God. We've seen it time and time again throughout history. People working for peace are silenced one way or another. And I have to say, I'm with those teenagers. Enough is enough. Amen. I'm tired of hearing so-called Christ followers talk about their gun rights. Yeah. I'm so tired of hearing all lives matter from people who have never experienced the racism that's so intricately woven into our country's systems yeah. and into many people's minds. I'm tired of hearing thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers every week, every day when something terrible happens. Yeah. And I saw this shirt recently that I, that I really want that says, um, it has thoughts and prayers crossed out and it says policy and change. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what we should be calling for, isn't it? Because guess what? <laughs> our faith is political. Yeah. When groups of people are being killed, our faith has to be political. Yes. If we are following the way of this radical, cult-riding, peace-seeking Jesus, yeah. then we have to step up and work for change. Yes. So this story is political. Who knew? <laughs> our faith is political. And our hosannas are just joyful praises to God. They are cries for peace that only God can bring. They are crimes, promises, that we will work alongside others to help bring that peace here on earth. We can't just cry out, Lord, save us, and wait for a miracle. We have to be a part of the change. We are called to seek peace and justice. We are called to help God's, God's dream for this world become a reality. We are called to stand beside the marginalized and oppressed and work for systemic changes. We are called to be subversive in this culture that says guns are more important than our children. Jesus, we are called to be like Jesus as he so consistently shared the subversive gospel. We must too. I hope that our hosannas today aren't just words of praise, 
I hope they're also cries saying, Lord, we need you. Cries for the Lord's peace and statements on how we intend to join with God to make that peace a reality. So, Hosanna.